Hello and welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast all about the life, times, and work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the World War II era Lutheran pastor, moral philosopher, and Nazi resistor who would ultimately give his life for his convictions when he was summarily executed at the Flossenburg concentration camp by orders from the highest echelon of the Nazi party, and that after a multi-year and heroic struggle to preserve the moral and spiritual integrity of the church and its witness in Germany. He and his fellows would largely lose that war, but would win many battles, including preserving a small remnant of the church against the uh, moral corruption, uh, the spiritual compromise, and the politicization of the church in Germany. And they did that in a number of ways. And of course, that put him at great risk. He was jailed. Uh, he became part of a conspiracy to bring down the Hitler government and would ultimately be executed for that uh, at age 39 in April of 1945. But of course, uh, there was a very large and complicated context to all of Bonhoeffer's work, and that was, of course, the Nazi regime and its most grotesque uh, expression of its utter, uh, utter and complete uh, moral turpitude, and that was the mechanized mass murder of millions of innocent people in what is commonly referred to now as the Holocaust. And there's a very interesting conference held every year in the United States examining this context of the Holocaust from that period. And that is a backdrop to the Bonhoeffer drama that just can't ever be ignored or uh, underrated. It was a huge part of the context. In fact, you could argue that it was the thing that pulled Bonhoeffer across the line on the conspiracy to assassinate Hitler, uh, again, because of the enormous amount of human suffering and death that was occurring. And uh, that factors in. Uh, we don't have time to explore it here. We will in a future podcast. But in any case, the Holocaust is terribly important all of its own. But when you attach it to the story of Bonhoeffer and his fellows in Germany, uh, it gives their struggle uh, more meaning. And that's why I attended the recent 49th Annual Scholars Conference on the Holocaust and the Churches held at the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. That was March 2nd through 4th of 2019. And while there, I had an opportunity to talk to some of the experts on this question of the Holocaust in general, but also specifically of the churches and their role, uh, both in ameliorating some of the suffering uh, that was occurring during the Holocaust and, sadly, 
also their complicity with it. So this is a very big subject matter, and I was able to sit down with four such experts, and I want to share those conversations with you. So among them was Dr. Henry F. Knight of Keene State College in New Hampshire, where he is professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies and director of the Cohen Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies there. I thought most interesting uh, was the fact that he was a student uh, or a mentee, if you will, of Elie Wiesel, the uh, Holocaust activist uh, and, uh, you know, really an icon of uh, the post Holocaust analysis. Of course, Dr. Wiesel was, in fact, a survivor of the Holocaust and was in so many ways uh, the, the catalyst for uh, the development of Holocaust study centers and museums and archives uh, here in the United States and around the world. So this is Dr. Henry F. Knight and me uh, talking about his involvement in this area of study and its importance, uh, a mentee of Dr. Uh, Elie Wiesel. So uh, here you go. Listen in as I talk with Dr. Knight. The Reverend Dr. Henry F. Knight is professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies, director of the Cohen Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies, at Keene State College, I think I've got it right in New Hampshire. Yes, right? in Keene, New Hampshire. Because I mix it up with the Keene in New Jersey, where I'll be shortly, but I know yours is a superior institution, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we can't, we don't want to be competitive, but it's, no, pretty, of course it's not. pretty special. Well, uh, and uh, so was your presentation here at the Scholars Conference well, on you. the Holocaust and the Churches. And I'm looking forward to more of it as the conference goes on. This podcast is going to play around uh, Holocaust remembrance. And mm -hmm. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that. But first, let me mention uh, your book, Confessing Christ in a Post-Holocaust World. A lot of Christians would not put those two things together in the same sentence. How did you approach that subject in, in your book. How did I approach that subject? Um, I mean, maybe... maybe I, uh, how did I get there, maybe? Or yeah, I, how did you get there? Why would you even uh, bring these two subjects together, uh, Christian witness and post-Holocaust? Most Christians do not use the Holocaust as a reference point for their own Christian belief, but you provoke us here. Oh, thank you. Uh, actually, you're question uh, helps me it helps me a little uh, a bit uh, I finished my seminary uh, training my doctoral work in theology and uh, was looking for uh, a book uh, for good summer reflection um, in way back in 1975 mm. and I picked up a little book called uh, the crucifixion of the Jews by Franklin Littell. Ah, and read him for my own doctoral work, and actually the reason I'm here at this conference because of his role in establishing this conference. Well, he threw me for a loop, as 
if you're familiar with that work, you know exactly Indeed. why. Um, because what I, the the way in which I felt and experienced the reading was, I'd finished 120 pages of reflecting on uh, a backstory or a a, uh, a shadow history of my own theological tradition, and I just finished earning uh, my doctorate uh, in a way that um, uh, gave me some some real pride in, in uh, understanding the complexity and richness of my own tradition, and I realized there was this shadow history I had no knowledge of. There was a, um, a discounting of Jewish identity and a building of Christian identity over against that of, of Jews. And it was uh, extraordinarily unsettling for me and opened a door that uh, I walked through and haven't ever regretted um, um, going through. But it was, it's been an existential journey of how do I make sense of an identity I don't want to give up, but an identity that uh, was uh, deeply chastened, existentially chastened um, by this back history or or shadow history that eventually um, contributed to and in many ways led to uh, the Holocaust. So for me, it's a matter of um, I wasn't going to give up my identity as a Christian, but I had to do something that um, where I could make sense of it. And I found it to be a very similar struggle to what it meant for me to be um, uh, a white um, child of the American South, that they're um, dealing with what does it mean to deal with this um, uh, shadow history of racism that's also part of my identity as a, a Southern American. And I found um, Elie Wiesel to be uh, a particularly instructive witness for me. Uh, so I began to read his work, and um, he introduced me to uh, other scholars who were working with similar sorts of things, and eventually I found my way to uh, reading and, and working with Midrash uh, as a way of wrestling with my own formative texts. So let's define for folks who may not be familiar with Midrash as a technique, if you will, uh, what, what you mean by that, by using the term. Well, maybe, maybe the, the simplest way for, um, for people to understand Midrash is it's a way of thinking about existential issues according to the scriptures, using the biblical texts to think about one's own life uh, and entering into those texts as if they're living um, organic realities and um, trusting the text to be giving you something substantive, not simply to incorporate and then regurgitate, but giving you a structure and a way of thinking about your world that uh, when you begin thinking according to those texts, um, you're in a sense uh, wrestling with yourself, 
maybe the the biblical story that captures this best for me is the story of Jacob wrestling with mm. the angel at the river Jabbok. Mm. Uh, in in when you read that material and encounter um, the one with whom Jacob was wrestling, it's in, in Hebrew. It's an ish. It's a man, uh, and you begin to ask if you're following the logic of the story, who's the Ish? What's the name of the Ish? And indeed, Jacob asks for the name, but he never gets the name of the Ish. Instead, he reveals his own name to the Ish, and the Ish says, now you shall uh, be called Israel, not Jacob, for you have striven with, wrestled with God and human beings, and you've survived. And that's really, uh, in many ways, for me, uh, 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 it captures what Midrash is about. It's a way of wrestling with yourself through the scriptures. The the texts give you a structure and a narrative uh, that when you begin to look at its, its face value, the text does it, presents itself, you begin to dig into it, it, it becomes a garden. Uh, and in the study of Midrash, there's a, um, uh, an expectation that there are four dimensions. You're, uh, the pashat or the face of uh, the text, the simple meaning of the text. There's remez, the, the kind of hints and liminal dimensions of the text. There's the uh, darash where you dig into the text. And there's the sud, the secret, the revealed meaning that you gain from the text. And it and Midrashic thoughts talks about that is the it, it forms a word, pardes, which is the word we get paradise from. Hmm. So it, it just suggests to you that uh, the text is really a garden and your task is to be a gardener or a caretaker or one who takes care of that garden. And when you do, and you turn the soil and you just do the work of uh, a good steward of that garden, it'll bless you. But it's wrestling. It's uh, an interrogation. Another way to think about it is to say you're paying attention to the, uh, the, the words and the letters and the selection of the words really carefully, but you're also paying attention to the white space, the gaps, the things that, why isn't this there? What's missing? Why are, what's going on? And I like, one of the ways I like to think about it, it's like uh, understanding when you read a biblical text, it's all blue text, like a, in a you know, online, it's, yes. it's, it's hot text. You, you tap that word and you go multiple places. Well, to realize that that's what happens when you're reading biblical text. It takes you to other parts of, um, of the witness. And, and pretty soon you realize you're being searched mm. by the text that you're searching. And so there's this double uh, encounter going on. And so for me, that's Midrash. And I, I've sought um, the wisdom of Scripture to make sense out of the questions posed for me by my study of the Holocaust, questions about 
divinity, questions about human responsibility, questions about my own tradition, because I, um, part of that history, that back history I learned, uh, I discovered that Christian identity has been built rather um, uncomfortably using Jewish identity as a foil or as a target. Mm-hmm. And, Would you say more about that? Yes. Um, when, um, when Christians define themselves over against Jews, saying, this is who we are, we're not that, we're not those people. There, it's um, it, it's what um, one scholar. I'll come up with her name in a moment. Uh, uh, calls an agonistic identity. You need someone else over against whom to build your own identity. And um, so, if you if you read um, fair amounts of Christian theology. There are subtle ways and explicit ways where Christian identity uses Jewish identity as a foil or as a, um, a prop. And um, let's see if I can... Give Sometimes you some. in quite grotesque ways. Yes, and other, other times, times quite other, subtle. And, and um, for example, if um, we talk about for Christians... Uh, we read uh, the Hebrew Bible, and we recognize that as law and the New Testament as gospel. Um, that's language that most Christians are fairly familiar with, the, the kind of law-gospel dialectic of Martin Luther or um, John Calvin. Law and grace, maybe, in the evangelical circles. Right, mm. right. And, and then you're simply you're positing what the New Testament gives as a gift against what the Hebrew Bible gives as um, mandates that human beings really can't fulfill. And it's a negative understanding of the message of one um, set of scriptures versus the freeing message of another set. But it's, it's how gospel is placed in relationship to law. Whereas, um, so you have a inferior superior yeah, dichotomy. That that's way. a great way to put it, uh, and it's a false dichotomy. Um, and, and, and so, what does it mean for someone to read the Hebrew Bible? And notice, I'm not calling it the Old Testament, because that's language that came out of um, uh, a kind of contest between which which sets of scriptures uh, were authoritative and which were not. Um, But if I'm reading the Hebrew scriptures and asking, how does it speak to me and how does God reveal God's self to me in those texts, then then that's a healthier, from my perspective, healthier way for me to relate to the biblical literature than to see it as a prop for what's going to be correctly given later in the in the New Testament. Mm. Uh, and so they're explicit and um, as well as tacit forms that that kind of understanding um, takes shape. I mean, even something as simple as the structure of a Christian worship service where the Hebrew Bible text that might be read for um, 
uh, a lesson that Sunday, is selected in order to be a prop for the New Testament passage that's going to be selected for the sermon. Now that's, uh, or even in the setting a up kind of, of the warm up act. Yes, yes, it hmm. really is. It's a, it's this this prepares the reader for understanding what the gospel's about, as opposed to asking how it's how might God be speaking through um, this uh, passage from uh, Exodus or this passage uh, from Deuteronomy or this passage from. Uh, um, Micah. I mean, it, so they're just subtle ways and not so subtle ways that this works. And I, I suppose that plays into the larger question here: uh, your own experience with uh, confronting the Holocaust in your own personal journey. Yes. And then, as a professor, and and now uh, in the lecture hall, if you will, uh, because when you see Old Testament as only supportive of New Testament, and its only place is that, what, what, some, uh, uh, you, you really are looking at a deficiency. In other words, the Old Testament is deficient without the New, which suggests a certain disposition uh, among too many Christians. I mean, I certainly had that yeah there's a there's a sense it's incomplete mm -hmm. it needs um, it needs the gospel witness of the new testament to complete the witness of of the old testament as opposed to no this these scriptures can can be the word of god for people who take the time to listen who who dig into the text and who let the text speak to them in its own voice and who let the secrets of that text come alive. So did any of this play a role in that transformation, the awakening, if you will? Uh, did you realize something about your own Christian faith in your confronting the Holocaust as a reference point for yourself? I mean, in, in your title, it's, it seems to suggest, I haven't read the book yet, I can't wait now, <laughs> especially after this conversation. I want to get to your book. Uh, but you seem to hint uh, in the title at a, a, a point at which the Holocaust now enters your Christian experience. Yes, it does. Um, and how so? Well, one way, one way to talk about it is to say that uh, I read I, I read those texts in the light of knowing what uh, happened to the Jewish people uh, because of uh, this long trajectory of um, animus toward Jews that started with blaming Jews for the death of Jesus, which used Jews as a scapegoat, which used Jewish identity as a prop for Christian identity, which eventually moved from um, that kind of um, displacement logic, replacement logic, into something much more, um, much crueler when uh, Jews were demonized and seen as children of the devil. And then when they became blamed for all sorts of uh, wrongs and ills with 
with the world. And so you, you move from a kind of subtle form of um, we-they dichotomizing logic where um, they become um, the foil against which you build your own identity to movements of, of, of demonic blame and then something that, that takes over is a, a kind of racialized uh, sense of um, hatred. So you, you move from um, uh, a kind of competitive logic of which one of us, those who follow Jesus or those who are uh, moving in the direction of um, rabbinic Judaism, it's competition. Who is it that happens to really be the people of God? And then it moves into a kind of blame game where it's anti-Judaic. And then the anti-Judaism transforms into racialized anti-Semitism. Well, that's a, that's a really um, uh, oversimplified summary of 2,000 years of history. But it captures some of what's going mm. on. Mm. And when you understand that kind of historical connection to this, then it implicates someone who claims to be a Christian. My Christian identity is somehow related to this hatred that victimized uh, my Jewish brothers and sisters. And how do I come to terms with that? I can't undo that history. Um, but I can rethink how I dwell in my own identity with my Jewish brothers and sisters in a way that says I can affirm your identity as a Jew from my reconfigured identity as a Christian. But it means I'm dwelling in my identity having wrestled with the blame, the anger, and the animus that Jacob wrestled with in his own uh, journey of trying to figure out who he was. And, um, and in some sense, I've got to just insist on wrestling with that figure so that if I hold on to that other and insist, don't let go of me, I'm not going to let go of you, there's a blessing that comes from that relationship. And I can tell that story by using the story from Genesis 32 mm. and realize that's not just Jacob's story, it's Hank Knight's story. Mm. It's uh, anyone's story who wrestles with their own identity. So I can tell you about who I am according to the scriptures. That's Midrashic identity. Mm. Mm. And, and said so well, and I watched it as you led a midrashic discussion this morning at the conference uh, where, where we're both in attendance. Can, can I ask you this sort of in conclusion, and I know it's, again, simplifying a very complex matter, but uh, is it imperative, is it a necessity for Christians to remember, to engage with, to inform uh, themselves about the Holocaust? Do you see it as a required encounter for Christians? Uh, I have to say, in the world that I inhabit, most of the Christians I know will likely go their entire lives without 
doing much more than acknowledging that the Holocaust happened at a certain time in a certain place, but it's the past and it's the distant past is certainly something to lament, but it's not something that they engage in any way. Do you see it as sort of a required exercise, something Christians ought to do? I'm un I think I'm a little uncomfortable with the word required, but I'm not uncomfortable with the, word, with the phrase ought to do. Um, I think there's a vocational uh, dimension to this, where Christians who are listening uh, for the word of God in their lives are incomplete if they do not hear this vocational summons. Uh, and I would liken it to the story of the burning bush. The, um, the burning bush for Moses was the persecution of his own people, Jews. And when he finally understood that, his response was, here I am. And he went into um, a circumstance that he had left behind as someone who had killed another human being. So he had to go confront some really difficult history about himself. Uh, and for me, the burning bush story is kind of a, a formative piece. Um, this history is a burning bush kind of story for me. It summons me to presence. Uh, and I think for other Christians who are wrestling with this part of their lives, um, Burning Bush story captures it. And I don't see that as um, a requirement as much as a vocational dimension of um, if you listen carefully enough, the suffering of the Jewish people is a summons to uh, Christians and the church and other human beings who've participated in some form, scapegoating, finger-pointing, prejudice, um, yeah, we've contributed to this. And so the first thing is turn around. Hmm. Turn around. And that should be a familiar concept to any Christian. I yes, it should. Turn around, face the bush, take off your shoes, and then ask, where, where do I need to go? Uh, and I, I don't know where to take it any more than that other than it's, the, it's a burning bush story for me. And one would hope we would all have the kind of encounter that would leave us saying, here am I. Yes. Well, uh, Dr. Henry Knight, thank you for that enriching discussion, and most especially, thank you for the good work that you do and for helping us remember the Holocaust. Thank you. I'm honored.